This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. The Festival of In-Gathering, the Harvest Festival, the Festival of Booths, a double significance of the word Sukkot, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Today on Viewpoint, we are going to talk about the amazing significance of this seventh feast of the Lord as set forth in Leviticus chapter 23. It has tremendous import for you and for me and for the entire world and for Israel as well. So I hope that you'll stay tuned. It's conversation as always with ever-increasing conviction talk that transforms. These names are used in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, referred to by Gentile Christians usually as the Pentateuch. They're called the Festival of Ingathering or Harvest Festival because they come at the end of the agricultural year when the harvest takes place. They are also called the Festival of Booths because, in fact, they were to take place in Structures that were very temporary, with at least two, with at least three walls, so that they could provide at least a measure of protection for the agricultural folk as they were doing their harvest. It is one of the most important, in fact, one might say the most important feast of the Lord. Why? Because it's the culminating feast. It's the one that foretells the most joyous moment for the history of the world and mankind. It is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Well, you may recall that in the book of John, chapter 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt, actually it's chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. When you read that, the word was made flesh, that is referring to Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. When you read that, what it's really saying is, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, lived among us. Jesus actually became the ultimate and final total tabernacle and ark for humankind that's why the scripture says in him we live and move and have our being in him our tabernacle we live and move and have our being we know that the lord god does not live in tabernacles made with hands but he does live in living tabernacles so You and I, if we are walking with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Notice, he abides with us still. That means he tabernacles with us still. He lives among us and in us 
and through us. That is the ultimate meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we want to take a look at how this played out in Israel, how it plays out in Israel today, and how it plays out following the other six feasts of the Lord. Remember, the first four of those feasts were already fulfilled by the spring of the year. They have been fulfilled in history. But the final three of the seven feasts have not been fulfilled in their totality. Yes, indeed, when Yeshua came, he came as a babe and a major. Yes, indeed, he was to be God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. But there is a further fulfillment of that prophecy. And that is that ultimately he will tabernacle among us and we will tabernacle with him. That is our hope. That is our future. And in the meantime, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. We can't trust anything. We cannot trust the deepest frame. We cannot trust the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. We cannot trust the Republican Party, the Democratic Party. We cannot trust Dr. Fauci. We can't trust the New World Order. We can't trust anything but holy lean on Jesus' name. So for now, you and I are strangers and pilgrims in the earth. If you were to read the book of Hebrews, you would find that it refers to Abraham and refers to the patriarchs as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. In other words, they did not consider this earth to be their ultimate home. And so we used to sing a song, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me to heaven's open door, and I can't be at home in this world anymore. In other words, I can't have a permanent sukkah here. What is a sukkah? Well, the sukkah is the booth or the temporary dwelling pending the harvest. Pending the harvest. Oh, there is a harvest time coming, friends. Remember that Jesus said that uh, we should pray that there would be more labor sent into the harvest? For the time of the harvest has come. And if we really believe that, if we really, 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 really believed that this world was not our ultimate home, it might change the way we thought. That's what Israel is supposed to remember when they build their sukkahs, their little temporary dwellings, their little booths for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's not just a ritual. It's about a hope. It's a symbol of the temporary nature of this life on the planet until Messiah comes. And so, the Feast of Tabernacles is considered the most joyous time of the entire Hebrew calendar. And you can see why then. 
The Feast of Tabernacles is also the most prominent feast mentioned more often in the Bible than any of the other feasts. Might come as a surprise to you. Mentioned more to, more frequently than the Feast of Passover uh, or Pentecost. More, why would that be? Because it is the ultimate consummation of all history and prophecy. And it falls in the autumn of the year, on the Hebrew calendar, on the 15th day of Tishri, the seventh month, only five days after the solemn day of atonement, and it lasts for seven days. Any significance to the number seven? You bet. The fulfillment of God's intended purpose. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll be right back, friends, to unfold the glory of this feast and the hope that it spells for you and for me. This is Viewpoint. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. As the full import and impact of COVID-19 and the vaccine mandates all over the world, you may find yourself actually rejoicing in the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles is about to be fulfilled. Because this world is not my home. We're just passing through. We're aliens, as the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11. We're strangers and pilgrims, aliens on this planet. Israel, we're called peculiar people, a peculiar nation. True followers of Jesus Christ are referred to the same way. We are a holy nation of peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his light. The Feast of Tabernacles gives hope in the ultimate light of the world. Remember Jesus said in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, rather, he said, I am the light of the world. And he said, you are the light of the world. The light of the world has something to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. Also, when Jesus said, you can drink of the water of life freely, in fact, you must drink of the water of life freely, if you have any hope of salvation, then it also becomes meaningful in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. We have a lot to talk about here on Viewpoint today, and I trust that it will bring joy and hope and a measure of peace amid all of the consternation and chaos and confusion that is taking place in America and all over the world. 
So because the joy associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, it became the most prominent of Israel's holidays. Three times during the year, all Jewish males were required to appear before the Lord in the temple. And that those were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, that is Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They were known as the Pilgrim Feasts because of the required pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So why were they pilgrims? Well, because they had to put their complete trust in the Lord. When they left Egypt, you see, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread coupled with Passover. And so they were strangers leaving Egypt, going to a promised land that nobody knew about. Nobody knew them. And then at Pentecost, they had to return they had to return from wherever they had spread themselves all over the face of the earth. They had to return to Jerusalem. Because that indicated that Jerusalem was the centerpiece where the presence of God would be could be trusted to be there. The Feast of Weeks, called Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy spirit upon the people. And then the final of the three pilgrimage feasts was the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, where they would build their Sukkots, or Sukkahs, rather, uh, their little booths, to enforce upon the people the idea that they actually were only pilgrims and strangers upon the earth. So this earth, our world, worldly experience, is temporary. It is not intended by God to be permanent. It is a working out of our salvation. As the Apostle Paul said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That doesn't talk about a salvation of works. No, We are to live out our salvation on the planet, revealing that we truly are of another kingdom, that we truly are citizens of heaven, and therefore are, in effect, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, if you really realize that you're a stranger and pilgrim on the earth, you're not going to put quite as much emphasis and trust in what goes on on the planet. It's not that you shouldn't be concerned at all. We are to be caretakers of the planet. We are to uh, conduct ourselves in such a way that we bring glory to God while we are here on this planet. Our lives are to make a difference, but our lives are to represent that we live in another kingdom. Because our ultimate citizenship is not here on earth. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. The Apostle Paul talked about that, didn't he? But do we really think that way? Not too much. Most people are more concerned 
even Christians are more concerned about their citizenship in the United States of America than they are about their citizenship in heaven. So in many respects would sacrifice the calling to the citizenship requirements for heaven in order to try to gain some further benefits of earthly citizenship. So we get confused. It's not that we cannot be patriots in our country. It's not that we can't do the best that we can to provide good leaders. We should. But it's that we don't put our ultimate hope and our trust there. Because if you do, you're going to be sorely disillusioned. Are you disillusioned yet? Are you becoming increasingly disillusioned? Well, that's good in one sense. Because it is calling us to account. It is getting our attention. God is trying to get our attention that this isn't our ultimate home. This isn't our open ultimate tabernacle. He describes that ultimate tabernacle in the book of Revelation. From chapter 20 through chapter 22. So this is a, a, a feast of hope, a feast of trust, a feast of deliverance, a feast of joy in the presence of the Lord. And in the days of the temple, the Feast of Tabernacles is actually viewed with with great awe. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles that even Solomon dedicated the newly built temple to the Lord. You may recall all that. When, When Solomon was praising the Lord and dedicating the temple, Right there in Second Chronicles, the Shekinah glory of the Lord descended from heaven to light the fire on the altar. It filled the Holy of Holies. You can read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 5, chapter 7, 1 Kings chapter 8. It's all right there. And when the Lord returns, when Jesus returns, he's going to do that if, if, uh, The Israelites thought that that was glorious then. It is going to be even more glorious when he returns, because every eye shall see him. Every eye shall see him, and every knee will ultimately bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who have been prepared those who are truly walking with him in righteousness and in truth and in trust and obedience are going to be filled with joy. As the song said, is joy unspeakable and full of glory, and the half has never yet even been told. But those who are not ready are going to be full of immeasurable lament immeasurable lament, because, as Jesus said there in the parable concerning the the ten virgins, you see, they all knew that the wedding was coming. But only five of them prepared oil in their lamps. 
Only five of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Only five of them were actually prepared for the wedding supper of the Lamb. But the other five, when they realized the trumpet had sounded, when they realized the bridegroom was on the way, all of a sudden they got nervous. All of a sudden they were shaken, realizing, oh, wow, this wasn't the whole thing here, like I thought. Jesus really is coming. The bridegroom really is coming. And I'm not ready. So they wanted to buy their way in. They wanted to uh, have the five prepared virgins to share with them the oil in their lamps. They said, no, we can't do that. We'll run out. We won't be prepared ourselves. So the five foolish virgins went off to get oil in their lamps. And when they returned, the door of the wedding feast was closed. They were not able to tabernacle with the bridegroom. They were not they were not able to experience his presence, and they lamented horrifically. So interestingly, the Feast of Tabernacles occurs at Israel's change of seasons. So it, it kind of marks the the beginning of their rainy season. So water and rain became a main focus regarding the Feast of Tabernacles. And the anticipation of rain, Israel doesn't get a lot, so the anticipation of rain was at its highest during uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and so they became inseparable in the practice and rituals of Israel. And we're going to find out why that was. In the days of the temple, Jewish pilgrims flocked to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. At sundown, there was a blast of the shofar, the ram's horn, from the temple announcing the arrival of the holiday. So it was a a sense of excitement that came, uh, intense anticipation of rain, was reflected in the temple services. And so they had a a sacrificial pouring out of liquid called a libation that was offered to the Lord as a visual prayer for rain. And they went down to the pool of Siloam. The high priest would carry a golden pitcher, and he, he carefully dipped the pitcher in the pool and brought it back to the temple mount. <clears throat> so... The high priest with the water from the Pool of Siloam, (coughs) when he reached the southern gate of the temple, known as the Water Gate because of this ceremony, he entered. There were three blasts of the silver trumpet sounded from the temple, and the priests, with one voice, repeated the words of Isaiah. And here they were. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now perhaps you can have deeper meaning and understanding why the Scripture says that we should drink of the water of life freely. This isn't just a New Testament concept. This was in the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
So the high priest poured out the water before the Lord. There were blasts of the silver trumpets. And the people listened as a choir would sing the what is called the halal, that is the praise psalms 113 to 118. And they would, the congregation then would wave their palm branches toward the altar and sing, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So, Psalm 118 was viewed as a messianic psalm. And so it kind of gave the feast a messianic emphasis. And that's why Jesus was greeted by the crowds, remember this, shouting, Hosanna, which is Hebrew for save now, taken right out of Psalm 118, verse 25. And the waving of the palm branches at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So they viewed him as the Messiah King, coming to tabernacle among them and save now. Oh, we're just starting to get the significance now. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived, Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. We're talking about Sukkot. We're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. We're talking about the Feast of Booths, which is the seventh feast of the Lord set forth in Leviticus chapter 23. And that feast begins tonight at sundown. And it lasts for seven days. Why seven days? It's the perfection of joy. The happiest, most joyful feast of the Lord in the life and history of Israel. They haven't fully comprehended it. If they had fully comprehended it, they would have known that it was foretelling the coming of Messiah and that when he came, there would be joy in the camp, unspeakable and full of glory, that the half would never again be told. It would be so amazing. But they didn't recognize Messiah when he came. He gave them signs. He tabernacled among them. He walked their streets. He drank, he drank their water. He ate their food. He touched their lives. He touched their hearts. He spoke the Father's truth, but they still didn't recognize him. Because they were looking for something else. They were looking for someone else. They were looking for a different kind of Savior. 
They were looking for a different kind of deliverer that would give them more temporal hope and joy. And that's what the people on this earth are looking for. And he's coming. He's called the Antichrist. He's coming sooner than you might think. He may actually be on the planet and probably is. And people are looking for him to give them hope. They want such a person to tabernacle among them, to be among them and to provide hope, leadership, and a sense of deliverance and joy from the consternation that they are experiencing on this planet. They have not put their hope in Yeshua the Messiah. They have not put their hope in the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. They have put their hope in earthly things, earthly deliverances. And so they were disillusioned when Jesus came. And the religious leaders thought that Jesus himself was usurping their power. He was taking away their glory. And so they crucified him. They had him crucified. Rome did the crucifixion. But the heart of the matter was with the Jewish leaders. Pontius Pilate recognized that. He said it was but for envy that they brought him. You see, we desire things if we don't have the right viewpoint. If we don't have God's viewpoint on a matter, we desire things that we think are going to fulfill our needs. But in reality, we've rejected the one who will and could and wants to and ultimately will demonstrate himself full of grace and truth in his second coming when the trumpet sounds to awake the world that the end has come. It's time for the ultimate Feast of Tabernacles, and the majority of the earth will not be able to participate because they have not prepared. They have not been preparing for the final harvest. It's interesting because we have a lot of pastors and we have a lot of missionary-minded folk out there who are saying that they want to prepare uh, for the great harvest to come. They're interested in the great white harvest. But the problem is they're not preparing the people of the harvest. They want to get people born again, supposedly, but they don't disciple them to be ready for the harvest. They're leaving them stillborn. Jesus does not want stillborn followers. He wants mature followers. He wants people to have been truly discipled and prepared to walk before him in truth and in righteousness in obedience, just as his own son did. 
that is, the Father's Son, Jesus. He said, I came to do the will of him that sent me. I don't do anything that the Father didn't show me to do. I don't say anything that he didn't tell me to say. And Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, says the book of Hebrews chapter 5. So, we put all these things in, in biblical context. You can't just look at little bits and pieces in the Bible and think that you've got it together. God is looking for a big picture. He has painted a very big picture for us, and we're so concerned with the little things that we miss the big painting that he has prepared for us to walk in. So, when Jesus came there uh, in his grand entry into Jerusalem, just before his crucifixion, they viewed him as the Messiah King. They came to deliver them, to save now. They hailed him with the messianic imagery of palm branches from the Feast of Tabernacles. And we find exactly that same imagery in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, where the redeemed saints worship with palm branches in their hand around the throne of God and the Lamb. So here's this Feast of Tabernacles. It begins in the middle of the lunar month when the harvest moon was full and the autumn sky was clear. So when they looked at the temple, it was unbelievable because the light coming off the whiteness of the temple was just amazing. Just amazing. So they had this celebration of lights, torch dancing, while the flames of the menorah oil lamps flooded the temple and the streets of Jerusalem with this brilliant light. And it was repeated every night from the second night until the final night as a prelude to the water drawing in the morning. And nothing in ancient Israel compared to this light celebration. It was so spectacular that the ancient rabbi said, he that hath not beheld the joy of the drawing of water has never seen joy in his life. So this light celebration was, shall we say, reminiscent of the descent of the Shekinah glory in Solomon's day and looked forward to the return of the Shekinah, the light of God in the days of Messiah. So, in the book of John, it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles, which was considered a Sabbath, when Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives to teach the temple. And as the Pharisees came to entrap him, Jesus made this statement, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. They didn't get it. He was playing on their celebration of light. Later that day, he reinforced the very same thing when he healed the blind man. And when he did that, he said, as long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. They didn't like that. The Pharisees didn't like that. What do you mean you're the light of the world? 
In fact, the light that he offered was would would light not just the temple, it would light the whole world. So he himself was the source. So then you know that Jesus turned around and said, now you're the light of the world because he's not here. So you're the light of the world. You have to be reflected light to light up this planet until he comes. Now, on the seventh day and final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, that begins tonight, the temple services reached a climax. This is a big, big deal. And Jewish tradition held that it was on this day that God would declare whether there would be rain for the coming year's crops. So on this final day of the feast, the temple water-pouring ritual took on great importance. It was on the forefront of everybody's mind. The trumpets gave three sets of seven blasts. The priests made seven circuits. And as they marched around the altar, they sang... From Psalm 118.25, where the people waved palm branches, and the day was known as Hoshana Rabbah, or the Great Hosanna. So there was a thoughts of rain, and kind of a messianic fervor was at a high pitch. It was about 30 A.D. It was Hoshana Rabbah, the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the people were watching the priests conduct the service, and a loud voice rang out from the crowd. And whose voice was it? They saw a young Galilean in his early 30s, the one who many held to be a great rabbi, a prophet, or even Messiah. And he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wow. What he really was saying, I'm the answer to your prayers. I am Messiah. I can save you now so that you will never thirst for salvation again. And so you can imagine there was a pregnant silence that followed followed by a spiritual debate that broke out among the people. Who is this guy? They're asking the same question today. How about you? Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church.
What a joy it is to be able to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, the most joyous of the seven feasts of the Lord, referenced in Leviticus chapter 23, and also referenced in the New Testament as we're revealing here in the last segment of the program. Because Jesus, on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, cried out just as they were getting ready to pour the libation ceremony, the water, he stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has set out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Try to imagine how that uh, sounded to the people. In fact, the Pharisees, you can see, they viewed it as a serious challenge to their religious authority. But nobody lays hands on him. So a debate rose among the people and among the leaders. Some believed he was claiming to be the Messiah, which he was. Others were debating the notion with, well, has not the Scripture said that the Christ, the Messiah, comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. So in the wake of those disturbing events, you can think of it, think of it happening today. Think of it happening somewhere and uh, the Internet <clears throat> and the tweets and everything go out across America. And the big leaders gather together. The head honchos, maybe they're political, maybe they're religious, maybe they're great, the, the big name pastors of the country and so on. And they, they gathered together. There were 24 of them, chief priests who were head over the 24 divisions of the priesthood, Sadducees, Pharisees. And they were usually at great odds with one another over theology, engaged in power struggles. But then they were united by their hatred of Jesus. So here's what they did. They summoned the officers of the temple to give an account as to why they had not arrested Jesus. So the officers were Levites who patrolled the temple and enforced the temple law. But they couldn't bring themselves to arrest him because no man ever spoke like this man, they said. This was a moment of truth for Israel. In the valley of decision, so to speak, Jesus had lived and ministered among them for three and a half years, and they never recognized him as the living tabernacle. They never recognized him as the living ark of salvation. Notwithstanding all the miracles, notwithstanding all his teachings, the people took him as a prophet. The religious leaders took him as a blasphemer. And so, here we are today, 2,000 years later, awaiting the final fulfillment. Now, the Bible, the Bible uh, speaks of the final judgment 
as a harvest, a future day of ingathering. When God gathers his people to himself and then burns the wicked like a chaff and stubble, you can read about that in Malachi chapter 4. So it's not surprising that the Feast of Tabernacles is tied to Israel's future as well as her past. So when the Messiah sets up his millennial kingdom, he will gather the remnant of Israel back to her land. It's happening now. Isaiah described this event as the harvesting of olives. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one. O you children of Israel, so it shall be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. And Zechariah, the prophet, says the righteous among the Gentiles, too, will be gathered to the Lord and will pray in Jerusalem. And not only that, he said they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, think about this. The prophet Zechariah says that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on the Feast of Tabernacles, there will have no rain. So the Gentile nations that refuse to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennial kingdom with Jesus Messiah tabernacled with them will receive no rain. Now that's not a good thing. You can't live without rain. You'll have famine. But already there's a famine of the word of the Lord in this land. We have so many Bibles. We have all of these things. We have... uh, uh, over th- uh, 3,000 or so churches. No, it's more than that, 300,000. Uh, we, we have so much, and yet there's a famine of the word of the Lord in the land. There's a famine of the water of life to be drunken freely. We're so busy trying to teach people how to be comfortable on earth that we are not leading them and teaching them in a proper attitude, how to prepare for the ultimate time of tabernacling with the Messiah in the Messianic kingdom. We're not doing it. We've lost the purpose. We've lost the focus. We have not kept our eyes on the horizon. We've been focused on the near things among us. Our vision has been clouded, just like ancient Israel's. Both Jew and Gentile now are concluded in unrighteousness, says the Apostle Paul. Now, there's going to be a sign of God's presence in the earth. The Shekinah glory is going to be seen in Zion again. The prophets talk about it. It will be like a tabernacle providing protection and refuge for the nation, the people of Israel. And Isaiah prophesied, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Over all the glory there will be a covering. 
and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from the storm and rain. That's foretelling the coming of Messiah. When Jesus addressed the people in the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle, he said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It would never dry up. Ancient Jewish theology connected that water-drawing ceremony with the Holy Spirit. Why do they call it the house of drawing? Because there they draw the Holy Spirit, said the rabbis. Why is the name of it called the drawing out of water? Because of the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, according to what is said, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in relation to salvation was a much repeated theme even in the old among the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah said, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants. And then the Hebrew prophet Zechariah prophesied of a future, a glorious day, when Israel as a people, a nation, would look upon the the pierced Messiah and repent of her rejection of him and would weep for him as for their only son. And God's spirit would be poured out upon them, and they would enter into the new covenant. I will pour out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn as one mourns for his only son. So the question before us today is, if Jesus were to ask today in your hearing, do you thirst? He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's it's living water. It's not going to quench your earthly thirst. It's going to quench your spiritual thirst. And an awful lot of people do not recognize the difference. They do not recognize that we're spirit being. That is how we're made in the image of God. As Blaise Pascal once said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every person. It's not believing in God that he is after. It's believing him. It's trusting him. It's faithfully walking with him in his presence. Whereas the scripture says, in his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. In other words, the Lord, even today, is wanting to suko tabernacle among us. He is wanting to walk with you and talk with you. 
As the song says, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. All of this speaks of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, the consummation of all of the feasts of the Lord. May I suggest to you that that moment is coming rapidly. First, the trumpet warns to repent, to come clean before God, Then there are the days of awe, ten days in which the people are called to seriously consider their lives before God and to repent. That was the Old Testament, but it's also the New Testament. John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus took over as Messiah, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he passed the baton to his disciples after his crucifixion and resurrection, since he was no longer the light of the world in the world, he said, now you are the light of the world. And they began to preach, repent, and believe the gospel. The apostle Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles preached the same message, repent and believe the gospel. And then the message is repeated seven times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation to the seven churches of Asia, repent, 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 and repent. In other words, prepare the way of the Lord so that you will be ready for the ultimate Feast of Tabernacles and the wedding supper of the Lamb, when Christ comes to take unto him his own. Are you ready? Don't answer too quickly, friends. It's not about believing in God. It's about walking with the Lord in the light of his word. Trusting him for salvation, for everything. Because remember, our citizenship is not here. We're strangers and aliens and pilgrims living in effective sukkahs, booths, until the grand in the Feast of Tabernacles. Thanks for you joining us. Become a partner. by faith. Viewpoint is supported by the Save America Ministries. Of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.